0: Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org.
1: Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear Heavenly Father, in this season of Lent, help us to reflect upon your grace and your love, a love so great that you sent your Son to die as a human for us to have eternal life. Lord, let Let that love, that wonderful love, shine through each of us to those that we meet or come in contact with, Lord. Thank you for your grace and love. In Jesus' name, amen. John 12, verse 20. Among those who went up to worship at the Passover festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake and not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Well, again, we thank God for the reading of Holy Scripture. What a gift that God has given to his people to keep us and to guide us through, through these turbulent times. We continue our series on, on how God transforms us, our teaching series from the inside out. And I trust that you are being moved by the Holy Spirit to examine that inner part, that interior life that we so often ignore. You may not know this, but the month of February is always a special month, month for me. First of all, it's because it's my birthday. But the second reason, it's because my daughter, our precious daughter, was born in the month of February, and it's also Black History Month. Now, this may not resonate for some Americans. But it does for millions of black people in this country for whom our story for so many years was either ignored or often told for us and not by us. And so this past month, I had the opportunity to read through a couple books by Isabel Wilkerson, Cast and The Warmth of Other Suns. And then I went back and reacquainted myself with Carson Clearborn's the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. I reread parts of the autobiography of Malcolm X and then I also read one of my most favorite Doris Kearns Goodwin book Team of Rivals. And what I found compelling compelling in reading those books is the fact that President Lincoln, Malcolm X Martin Luther King Jr. Jr. shared one thing in common. They were all assassinated. And they were still very young men. Martin Luther King was only 39. Abraham Lincoln was only 56. And Malcolm X was only 36. These men had plans They had dreams, they had hopes, they were looking ahead to the coming days. Their calendar was full of things that they wanted to do. Particularly, President Lincoln told his wife on April 14th, as they were driving in their carriage, coming back from having inspected the the building of ships in in the dockyard, he was telling his wife how much he wanted to travel to California. He had never been out west. He wanted to go to the Holy Land and and see the the place where Jesus walked. He was hoping after the presidency, he would go back and practice law. These men all had dreams and hopes, but they didn't know that their death was imminent. And so it got me thinking, as I often think about these things, if you knew the hour, if you knew knew the day, if you knew the, the, the week of your death, What would you do differently? What would you talk about? What would you focus on in your life if you knew that your day is coming and it's that day, it's that week, it's that month? Well, in today's reading, Jesus is heading into the last week of his life. He would be executed by Friday of that week, and he knew, he knew it was coming, and he spent the time giving two final public sermons explaining his death, at least by John's account. John chapter 12 is a pivotal chapter, and in that chapter, Jesus gives two final sermons. Now, remember what we said as we quoted Jesus' words last week from John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus said of himself that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, And in these public sermons, Jesus then shares how his death will save the world. And he shares why he is willing to die for the world. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning before we close. How Jesus's death will save the world and why he is willing to die for the world. And it's all contained in our reading this morning so how does his death save the world? Look, look all the way down in verses 32 through 33, and it's there on the screen for you to view. Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate the kind of death he would die. And so when I picture Jesus dying on the cross, of course, his arms are stretched out, And with one hand, he's drawing all of Old Testament's ancient people, drawing all of the people who came before him to himself. And with the other hand, I see Jesus drawing all of the Gentile world, all of the people who are yet to be born, including you and including me. He's drawing the old and the new into a new covenant, uniting them into himself. I like to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that he was drawing people of all races, all people, the peoples of all cultures and languages to himself. And this is why as followers of Jesus, we, the church, the body of Christ must be in front, doing everything to tear down structures of racism, to eradicate racial hatred, racial superiority, and the lies of nationalism. Jesus draws all people to himself. We must understand then why Jesus' death is central to who he is and what he came to do. Because today in our world, people are confused about Jesus. They're confused about Jesus' death. I've even heard Christians denigrate the words of Jesus regarding his death. And they call it child abuse because God sent his son to die on the cross. And Christians denigrate that death. Lots of people don't understand why Jesus died. And even here in John 12, the people who were listening to him were just as confused. For example, there were religious people in the crowd who made plans to put Jesus to death. And you say, well, why? And the answer to me, as I read it, is jealousy. Because if you go back to chapter 11, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and the crowds were, when they they saw the miracle of Jesus, the crowds surged toward Jesus. Suddenly, Jesus became more popular than the religious leaders. Did the religious leaders understand the centrality of his life and his death? And the answer is no. And then in that same passage, there were people in the crowds who were just curious about him. Jesus came at the time of festival, the Passover festival. And all these people from all over the empire came to Jerusalem for Passover. And by this time, Jesus was front page news. Everybody heard about him. They were calling his name. They wanted to see him. Did they understand the centrality of Jesus's life and his death? And I would offer to you that the answer is no. And then as you continue to read in John 12, the religious people who were supposed to be the custodians of scripture, even they were skeptical of him. And they said, how are we to be sure that you are the one? We read in the law that the Messiah remains forever. In other words, the Messiah cannot die. The Messiah is supposed to be indestructible. Why are you talking about dying? The Messiah can't die. Did they understand the centrality of his life and his death? And again, my answer is no. And then as you will hear in next Sunday's Palm Sunday reading, some people looked to him as a political solution, as the revolutionary one who would save his people by military means. Did they understand the centrality of his life and his death, even as they were saying, Lord save us. Hosanna as they were saying those words did they understand that and the answer is no and so as you might imagine there were expectations all over the map everyone had their own agenda everyone had their own definition and their own understanding of jesus and why he came and so here we have in our reading the greeks and, and these these might be greeks jews from who spoke greek from other lands it could be most likely gentile greeks who came to see jesus and we must also wonder what was their agenda did they get it they they understand what jesus was about you know the pulpit that is back in my home church in jamaica was a very hallowed place in the life of our congregation just as our pulpit is And as children and teens, we would sit out in the pews and we would watch the parade of people going back and forth to that pulpit, whether to sing a song or lead a prayer. A lot of important announcements were made from that pulpit. And of course, weekly, my pastor, the late Pastor Lou, would stand in that pulpit week in and week out, year after year, and deliver the messages that God gave him. And then a time came on a youth Sunday night that I was asked to be the speaker for that night. And uh, I remember as I walked up there, because that's not a place you're allowed to walk into. I walked up there and I had my Bible. And as I was about to put it on the pulpit, I looked down and I saw the words that you're seeing. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Why did they want to see Jesus? As a young boy at that time, I didn't know enough of the Bible to actually know it was a verse from the Bible that a group of Greeks, God-fearers, had come to Jerusalem wanting to see Jesus. I didn't know that. But why did these people want to meet with Jesus? We don't know. You know, Jesus didn't tell Peter or James or John to check his schedule and see which day is open and then book it. No, he didn't do that. Instead, what Jesus does, and and, and you have to understand, Jesus is his own person. You can't manage him. You can't control him. He always knows what he's going to do next. Jesus instead takes charge of the confusion, both from maybe the Greeks, from the religious leaders, from the 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 religious tourists, from just the, the mass of humanity that were in an uproar about him. He takes charge of that confusion, and he speaks very clearly about his mission and his purpose. And Jesus said to them in John 12, 23, that the hour, I mean, he literally knew the hour, the hour has come, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what did he mean? As you know, if you read on, he was speaking about the time of his death. Jesus was linking his glorification with crucifixion. Now, who in their right mind would do that? What kind of glory can come from execution on a criminal's cross? And Jesus answers the question in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Again, weird stuff. Isn't death on a cross supposed to be a curse? Isn't death a picture of defeat, of being overcome? Well, using the analogy of a seed being planted into the ground, Jesus explains that there is no fruit without his death, that the seed must be planted for something to rise up from the soil. It's as if Jesus is saying, I will be planted into the ground for three days. But after my death comes resurrection. And through my life and through my death and through my resurrection, hope and salvation will enter the world. And this is how Jesus understands his death, that his death is sacrificial. His death is for the world. It's substitutionary. His death is for the sinful humanity, and by giving his life as a sacrifice for sin, all of humanity now has the hope of forgiveness. Jesus explains very, very clearly what his death means and how his death saves the world. But I think the next thing he does in our reading this morning is is to explain to the confused masses why he would do it. They don't understand how his life and his death is the the door to salvation. They didn't get it. And I don't believe they understand why he would do it, so he explains it. And in, in summary, the reason why he's giving his life, it's because of love. It's because of love. Notice what he says in verses 25 through 26. Those who love their life lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Those are are massive words. Where I am. I know most of us, when we hear that, we assume where where he is in heaven, we're going to be there. Yeah, it could mean that. But where I am on the cross, where I am giving my life and love for the world, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. And Jesus, when he spoke about the honor of the Father, when he spoke about the glorification of the, through the Father or from the Father, He spoke about it through the door of suffering, through the door of death. And Jesus is saying to us that if you serve me, understand that God is going to honor you. You're going to go through a door called suffering. But the Father is going to glorify you and honor you. He's going to tell you, well done. Are we ready for that? So what is Jesus saying? Is he saying that I don't love my life? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what Jesus is saying is that he is not so much in love with this world that he's going to do anything to avoid death. Jesus loves God. Jesus loves the world so much that he's willing, as Paul says in Philippians, to humble himself, to take on the form of a servant and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is what he's talking about. As usual another hard saying of jesus if you're willing to hate your life in this fallen messed up self-seeking violent and manipulative rebellious world then you will be able to escape the snares and the traps of this world and all that this world says is important and you will be set free to live for jesus that's what it means to hate the world not not the people Not the beauty of this world, but the values, the agenda, the priorities of this world. Hate that, and you will be set free to serve Jesus. And in that way, Jesus says you will gain your life. John's epistle says a similar thing. John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. The world and its passions, they're passing away, but those who do the will of God will abide, will live forever." That's the nature of love. And this kind of love is more than feelings. This kind of love at its core demands action. This kind of love is sacrifice for the good of the other and he asks his followers to do the same. Love is the greatest impetus for living one's life. Love is the most transformative power for changing one's life. We could go on and on about that, but I think you know what I'm saying. And then he says this, My soul is now troubled the prospect of his impending suffering was weighing heavily on him. But then he says this, so what should I say? Ask God to save me from the hour of my death? He said, no, it is for this reason. It is for this reason. This is the reason why I I, I have come to this hour. Talk about clarity. Talk about being resolute. He's not turning back. Oh, that God would give us that kind of clarity as to why we're here and how we must live our lives. I think he understands that if he doesn't die and rise from the dead, evil wins. So listen to what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world be driven out. And we need to know that that Satan has already been defeated. That when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he triumphed over the powers of darkness and through his life and his death and his resurrection, he defeated every single strategy and plan that the devil intended against him. And by virtue of that, intended against us. And then he says these wonderful words and I repeat them again from verses 32 and 33. And so I, that's the reason why I'm here, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate the death he was to die. He did it in obedience to the Father. He did it out of love for the world. And without Jesus's obedience, without Jesus's love, we would be forever lost. And so as his followers, Jesus calls us to live with the same kind of obedience and love, and it is costly. Friends, to live with obedience and to live with love for Jesus as, your, as the big priority in your life, it will be costly. Let me explain. Let me explain. Like millions of people around the world, I was very interested in Pope Francis' visit to Iraq on March 5 through eight. And as I've read the report, Pope Francis said that the site of the destroyed churches, the ruins in Mosul, in Nineveh, in northern Iraq, left him speechless. And I've never been there, but I believe him. I've seen the, I've seen the devastation. He said, when I stopped in front of the destroyed church, I had no words. I had no words. And I thought about our facility, our church here. And I imagine this church being devastated the way the churches in northern Iraq were devastated. Speaking to the journalist, Pope Francis said that he had read about and seen pictures of the destruction in northern Iraq, but what he saw in person in Mosul and Karakosh was unimaginable. He visited Baghdad, the birthplace of Abraham, and finally to the rubble-strewn streets of Mosul, where the Islamic State, ISIS, declared its caliphate in 2014. But then he said, what touched me the most, and this is the point that I'm leading up to, he said what touched me the most was the testimony of a mother in Karakosh. She's a woman who lost her son in the first Islamic State bombings, and as I read about that, this woman's son and his cousins were playing in the front yard when a bomb just landed right where they were playing in the front yard of their home as little boys should be playing, and it totally took their lives. Pope Francis said, what moved me about this woman's testimony was the word Forgiveness, forgiveness. Pope Francis met Doha Sabah Abdallah, the mother who lost her son in the Syriac Catholic Immaculate Conception Church. This church was in the town of Karakosh. The town is 20 miles southeast of Mosul. It was occupied by ISIS from 2014 to 2016. And the atrocities that were committed against Christians in these towns are beyond belief and are, are, in my opinion, are on the same level as the way the Nazis treated European Jews during the Second World War. And that is why, friends, I am thankful that God sent Jesus. That is why I am thankful that Jesus came That is why I am thankful that there is a God who will one day return to render justice. There is no court in the land that can adequately deal with the injustices that were meted out, whether it's against Jews, whether it's against the Uyghurs, whether it's against Iraqi Christians, whether it's against African Americans in this country. There, 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 there is just no court in the land that can, that can get to the depth of the, the injustice and the way we as human beings treat each other. Abdallah shared the story with the Pope and those gathered in the church of the bombing of the town in August of 2014 that almost, that, that, not almost, that killed her son, and his cousins and this is what she said this is what she said to the pope and this is a point of what i'm getting to our strength undoubtedly comes from our faith in the resurrection a source of hope my faith she says tells me that my children are in the arms of jesus christ our lord and we the survivors try to forgive the aggressor because our master jesus has forgiven his executioners. By imitating him in our sufferings, we testify, hear me now, we testify that love is stronger than everything. And reflecting on this moment, Pope Francis said, I forgive. This is a word we, and he's referring to we, the Christian church, it's a word that we have lost. I can't tell you how many, how many situations I've been in just in this year alone where that word, I forgive, please forgive. Christians cannot say that word. And yet we say we're Christians, and yet we say we're followers of Jesus, and yet we say we're living a life of love. And this woman, she was able to say those words. Pope Francis said, We don't know that word anymore, but here's what we know. We know how to insult big time. Just go to social media and look at the things we say. We know how to condemn in a big way, but to forgive, to forgive one's enemies. And this is what the media picked up. Just type in the word pure gospel. This is the pure gospel. Type that in in your, in your search bar and this story has been covered by just about every news, news outlet around the world. To God be the glory. This is pure gospel. Pure gospel. This is why Jesus died. Because of love. So that we, through his actions, we, through his life, might be able to imitate him and live a life of love. This is a country that once was thriving with nearly 3 million Christians. And now, because of all of the atrocities and all of the violence and all of the persecution against Christians in Iraq, what was once almost 3 million is now about 250,000 and falling. And many are wondering... Christianity, which was in Iraq years, centuries before Islam showed up on the scene. People are now wondering, will Christianity survive in that part of the world? Pray, would you pray? When I, when I read this, I thought about my beloved friend and pastor, my beloved brothers and sisters that I know, I thought about Pastor Yunnan and hundreds and thousands of Iraqi Christians, both in the Chicago area and Canada, all over Europe, who finally had to flee. But you know what? There are many who are prepared to stay and to rebuild. And so you see the images, right? You see the destroyed church. ISIS thought they won. The devil thought they won. He won. But Jesus died, and when a seed gets planted, it doesn't stay dead, it bursts forth from the ground. And these Christians in Iraq are bursting forth from the ground, and they rebuild their church. And then you can just see the devastation, and you can see the hope and the possibility of this church being rebuilt. We're looking at an example of love and faithfulness these people don't even have jobs many of them they don't have the resources and yet people sacrificed and came together the faithfulness of iraqi christians what's driving them it's love where did they get the love they got it from a crucified savior who first loved us even in the face of death and so one of my all-time favorite hymns one that we sing at this time of the year when i survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And then the last verse always gets me. I, I, I can't really sing this with integrity. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, Love so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. That kind of love is ultimately what changes us us from the inside out. Take away the robes, take away the stole, take away the religiosity. That's not going to change us. But love for God will. And so on this fifth Sunday of Lent, Jesus wants us to know that loving him more than this world, it will be costly. And it's no wonder that we in America, our churches in America, are so lukewarm because we can't and we won't and we're not prepared to pay the cost of sacrificial love. But I pray Jesus will help us to fall more and more in love with him. And when you do that, be prepared. You may lose friends. You may lose your life. You may be canceled. You may be ridiculed because of your love for Jesus. But Jesus says, if they did it to me, remember, remember, they did it to me. They're going to do it to you. So don't be surprised. Don't fight back with weapons. Bless those who persecute you bless and pray for those who say all manner of evil against you, bless those who persecute you. It's not easy, but by the grace of God and with the love of God, we can be transformed to live that way. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.